This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. It's me, hi, Stephanie Butnick, the only person in New York City who did not go to the Taylor Swift concert, joined by my two co-hosts, tablet editor-at-large, Liel Leibovitz. Shalom to you, the other, other person who did not go to the Taylor Swift concert this weekend. And actor, Joshua Molina. Aloha. And now I feel like I have to pretend I went to the Taylor Swift right. concert. Yeah. But I didn't. I would have liked to. Instead of wearing Eras tour merch, you're wearing purple unorthodox t-shirt merch. Yes. And I it's really... It's a little on the nose, it's, as it's, we say. It, it's it is, perfect. by the way, insane how many people I saw in Eras tour t-shirts this weekend. Like, yeah. literally everyone on the Upper West Side was wearing it. Yeah. Like, Kids, ah, their well, parents. What every- do people do for a living? It was $1,600 for the cheapest seats. Like, oh this is God, insane. I don't know. It's so depressing that I wasn't there. But we'll get through through it. We'll use this together. show. Yeah, together we will get through it. Our Jew of the Week this week is someone that Joshua Molina has, has spoken about on this show before, filmmaker David Cowan, who chatted with us about his new documentary, Afghan Dreamers, about an all-girl robotics team in Afghanistan. We're also bringing you the next installment of our series Across the USA, where we head to New Orleans for Jazz Fest and a very special Shabbat. Of course, our Across the USA series is created in partnership with the Jewish Federations of North America. But first, we three have been seeing each other in like the after hours a lot this past week. Off mic. Yes, <laughs> off mic. I didn't know I was going to make new friends. <laughs> I'm delighted. Well, the only point of podcasting is to force people to become your friends, either as guests or co-hosts. Sure. So, yeah. By the way, I would not be surprised if that is literally why this entire industry started. It's adults having trouble <laughs> making friends past a certain age. But you know, if we pretend there's a show, <laughs> right? It's like literally what you did when you were eight. It's like, well, uh, here, this couch is my uh, guest couch and come on my television show, which is totally imaginary. Here we are. So the first time I saw you after hours was last Tuesday night when I went to Leopoldstadt, the play you're in. Thank you for your support. And of course, fans can buy tickets to go see the play with us on June 22nd. You can head to bit.ly slash uobroadway to join the fun. Can we talk about that freaking play? Please. It was a very lucky experience I had because we had talked with you and Aaron Neal that morning. Later that night, I went to see the show and it was... It's a lot. We talked about this in the interview. There's no Auschwitz scenes, right? Yeah. But it, and in fact, I mean, there's a scene set in 1938 on the eve of Kristallnacht, and then the next scene is in 1955. So obviously the Holocaust looms large in the entirety of the play, but is not directly. But that's, even, that's in the blooper reel. Period. But even that's at right, the beginning, right? It starts in like 1899, and we see the seeds beginning to be laid primarily by your character, Hermann. Yes, Hermann is a well-to-do textile factory owner who feels that Jews are doing just fine. The uh, potential upward mobility, especially in the cultural world of Vienna, suggests that things are okay. And things like pogroms and ghettos and mass executions and whatnot are things of the past. And of course, the audience, maybe most of the audience, one <laughs> hopes, uh, has a different point of view. Although, wouldn't it be nice if someone actually came in with no prior knowledge? Be like, that sounds like a good argument. I think he's right. Things are going to be just fine for that's the Jews. Right. But that's why it's so tragic to watch, right? Because he marries a non-Jewish woman. He himself gets baptized. Converts to Catholicism, correct, yeah. And everyone, even in his family, is like, you're still a Jew, dude. Yeah. And there is a great scene in 1900 where it's made clear to him, whatever else he thinks he's done or accomplished in life, that by certain people, perhaps by most people, he will be a Jew. He's super rich, right? That's the that's the subtext. Yes. And so he's like, I mean, I'm- he already said Jew. <laughs> <laughs> but like, it's sort of like this allegory for assimilation. I like to think of people in the audience, particularly Jewish viewers, walking out questioning how comfortable and secure they feel in society today. Totally. You know, that they could be the next version but, of Hermann who thinks like, things are pretty good. And like, gosh, that really was bad Everyone, was. Everyone you see stepping out of that play is like, wait a minute, did this, did this cab not stop for me? 
because it was occupied or is it my nose? I don't know. He really kind of treats you to a... So this yeah, it was, makes you question your complacency, perhaps. This was Tuesday. Uh, last Tuesday. Yes, last Tuesday. And then... I will say afterwards, I went to eat pickles, french fries, and an egg cream at Junior's around Jewish the corner. Jewish comfort food. Yes, yes. I was like, you, I need to went, come down from that. That was a lot of feelings. You went all um, in. Yeah, I went all in. And I don't want to throw flames, but Junior's egg cream, not great. Just mm. just going to say that. I know that they're a cheesecake place, but not not a great egg cream. I would say that the, anything that is in the vicinity of Times Square is... <laughs> not great anything. Just, but, but that's okay. You don't need to be great. You just need to be there and serve 700,000 people per hour. I mean, come on. But I will say that after after the show, I saw Aaron Neely came out of the stage door, you know, our Gentile of the Week last week. And he said, what did you think of it? Did it speak to you? And I said, yes. I'm like sobbing right now. Speak? I'm like, I'm still it crying. shouted at me. And he said, he's like, that means so much to me that it spoke to you. We as big Jews, essentially. <laughs> and I was like, what a freaking great guy. He is. Uh, he's the best. Which is why I brought him to uh, Tikkun Lel Shavuot, just to segue us into our next... <laughs> into our next After Hours Hey. Yeah. <laughs> and so here we are in the JCC on the Upper West Side of Manhattan for this incredible tradition, Tikkun Lel Shavuot. It's actually kind of interesting because the Midrash tells us that on the day we were supposed to receive the Torah, we, of course, being Jews, we forbringed up. And uh, we, we fell asleep. We did not wake up on time to meet God and receive the Torah. We, we, we literally slept through our we alarm. We literally hit the snooze button. How could you not love a tradition that has that story? Well, I wanted to give you the Torah, but you guys overslept. It's, it's like so high school all over again. So to make up for it, the great Kabbalist Rabbi Luria said, okay, here's a new tradition. We're going to stay up all night and study Torah so that we may not be late again. As we can attest from having done this together this year at the JCC, there's something kind of amazing about this, right? Because like you come through the night and you're feeling woozy. It's like like you used to go to a club when you were in your 20s, but it's kind of the same feeling, but a very different spiritual level of it. How did you feel? It made me remember as a kid staying up all night studying and the brilliance of making it feel transgressive that you were studying Torah. Like, right. I can stay up all night. I just have to study Torah. Right. Like, well, that's kind of brilliant Jewish take. And I remember it was my dad and I would go to our synagogue. It was in the basement of the rabbi's house at that point, young Israel Scarsdale. And it was nice to be part of the JCCs. Uh, they had a lot going on. It was a lot. From, I think, 10 p.m. till 6 in the morning. We we were given 11.15 to 12.15, which was kind of them. I loved it. It was a really engaged, That's the early bird special yeah, exactly. of, of the Tikkun. Like, right. come at Thanks. 11. You'll be home by it, midnight. It's fine. It'll be fine. <laughs> Seventy, you and I continued our, our hang, our Torah study after this event. And then I went all in. I am so freaking proud of myself. I stayed up until 5 in the morning. Well done. And wow. previously, when I stayed up until 5 in the morning, let's just say, very different substances were involved uh, yes, than yes. the ones on offer at the shul this time around because they're like huge plates of babka slices and everything required to keep also you an up. illicit recreational I, I mean, substance. I, I, I literally kind of you know tried to snort it, but it was very very delicious. So, okay, wow. So you really prayed all night. Do you pray or do you no, study? No, we what studied. Is it? We we read the Tanya, the sort of chief work of Hasidus that Chabad Hasidim love very much. It's an unbelievably astute work of psychological insight. That's the thing, like you're in such a dopey state of mind at like 4 a.m. that the heart opens in a very special way. I've never done it. And so I bopped around, went to a bunch of different panels. And then 
At 1.30 in the morning, I walked home. And you would think that walking home at 1.30 in the morning would be like scary or creepy or just like ill-advised. But when I got to West End Avenue on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, I just saw throngs. tons of people out. Streams of it Jews. It wasn't streams. It wasn't An streams. It wasn't throngs. But yeah. every block, I saw a few people. And I was like, oh, these are all Jews. I literally was walking. I saw doormen and Jews. And I was like, or maybe, you know, that's not name, necessarily name of, mutually name exclusive. But I was like, these are the people who are awake right now. And I felt this crazy feeling that so rarely happens where you feel part of something. I didn't know where they were going. I don't necessarily, but we were all walking at 1.30 in the morning and I felt this, is it, what did I feel? Jewishness? You felt Pride the Jewishness. Yes. Uh, so I want to describe an opposite feeling, that feeling not of inclusion, but of exclusion that okay. I felt. Because look, this Sunday, I felt really kind of amazingly part of, of maybe persecuted, but certainly a minority of people who have never seen a single freaking episode of Succession. Ah. Because that is literally what everyone yep. in my orbit was Serious talking about. Finale, it's like everyone's baby. going to church. I'd be like, I'm sorry, I'm a Jew. I don't subscribe <laughs> to your religion. I don't know what the So boy, you have not watched I don't any know Succession? Gonna, I have zero clue. Is it a point of pride? Will you, are, you, are you avoiding it because no, it's so popular? it's just by the time people started talking about it, it was already like season 19 or whatever it was. I'm like, I'm not going to put in 70,000 hours to get to this point. And then you kind of, yeah, you know what? No, I'm sorry. It is a kind of point of pride. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Oh, you watch TV in your spare time? Well, you know, I have, I'll have you know, I study Shakespeare. Um, <laughs> no, you're like, yes, I study I don't. Talmud all night. Do you That's watch right. Succession? I do, although I'm a few episodes behind, so I've not watched Ooh. the end. So we will not comment on the finale. But speaking of things you did pay attention to this week, Liel, let's go into News of the Jews, let's get that theme song, and then you bring us into our, our first item. News of the Jews. Oh, yeah. N-O-T-J, News of the Jews. This week is a very joyous week because we have news of the worst country, dare I say, in the world, the child rape capital no. of Europe, and, and perhaps the entire world. Of course, the joyful country of Belgium, which this week will not be very happy because a very large shipment headed to Belgium was intercepted by the Peruvian anti-drug police. Now, what did the Peruvian anti-drug police seize? Not only 58 one-kilogram packages, according to CBS News, of cocaine, but the particular cocaine consumed and favored by the citizens of Belgium <laughs> has pictures of not just the Nazi flag on the outside, but the name Hitler printed on the inside. These people not only <laughs> do blow, but they do Full-on Nazi blow, because that is how you roll in Belgium. So we don't have a lot of listeners from Belgium, I We guess. do. Oh, we and do. And they write in. And they're mostly are like, you know, Leo, they're in he's kind of right. He's kind of right. They're in the um, attic. Yeah, Leo's Yes, and they send those to me. Like, You're right. It's no, a horrible Leo's place. Leo's been on an anti-Belgium crusade for a very long time. I actually don't even know where it comes from at this point. It's uh, just maybe a, it's... by being the most horrid colonialist of all, still unrepentant and far worse than any other colonialist nation, maybe passing a whole host of anti Muslim and anti-Jewish laws right now, like no kosher slaughtering or Brits, et cetera, et cetera. You know, just mm. horrible, horrible people. So if Barbara Streisand were to play Belgium. I mean, that would just be. That would, be that would make me very happy. But here's the thing. So, okay, look, we all know that the Nazis, the, the actual, the OG Nazis, were very fond of cocaine. That was, they like their meth and their uppers. Yeah, that was, that was sure. part of. They is that true? It. I didn't. Know. Yeah, that, yeah, okay. yeah no, that's Hitler, how they got it all done. Hitler was. I that's think that they, was they part really of the secret sauce. Yeah, it was. Wow. But here's the thing: Do you really want to do Hitler blow? Doesn't that kind of bring you down a little bit? You're like, hey man, it's part. Oh, there's a picture of Hitler on my cocaine. 
Listen, this is kind of a killjoy. Is it just like extra badass? Like you got that Hitler coke. Like we got the good stuff. That's my drug dealer voice. That, that's the drug dealer you found in Etsy, by the yes, way, because yes. that's kind of what yes. that voice suggests. Does all hey. cocaine come with some sort of branding? But still, like, why Nazi branding? You could do like Mussolini branding. It'll be like a little more inclusive. Yeah, you want to be badass? Yeah, do, you know, Stalin. That's kind of I mean, cool. look, my favorite part about the story is that the cocaine was hidden in a shipping container carrying asparagus. And Hitler that's asparagus. Me, yeah, Hitler asparagus. Hitler brand. <laughs> asparagus. It makes your pee smell like Nazis. Um... <laughs> That is the tagline of the Hitler I'd buy that product. On to something almost as disturbing. This comes to us from JTA, and it's about Taylor Swift's rumored boyfriend, Matty Healy, Matt Healy, of the 1975. And the headline says he once gave a Hitler salute on stage and posted a, quote, list of Jews to Instagram. I think publishing lists of Jews, bad. Well, to be fair, publishing lists of Jews on our Instagram, that's something we do all the time. <laughs> Yeah, I guess it ultimately comes down to intention. It's great for engagement. I mean, there's a world in which this was totally subversive. And he was being like, look how fucked up this is. There's a list of Jews on Wikipedia. I worry. I worry about this pairing. How long will it be before she, Taylor Swift herself, had to make a statement of some sort? Like a salute? A salute to Matt Healy. Well, wasn't she also suspected at some point of being like a white no, supremacist? No, no. There were these white supremacists, white supremacists like took her on as an icon because she was like pale white? and blonde. Yeah. And they took all her songs and like m- misconstrued their lyrics. I, I only do Taylor Swift cocaine. I mean, I agree with that. It's the only kind. <laughs> I, I a... love Taylor Swift asparagus. Um, well, you know you know who the song Antihero is really written about? About Hitler? I believe. Look, I believe he'll so. stare directly at the sun, but never in the mirror. But speaking of people who really don't like Jews. Yeah, can we talk about this latest Roger Waters insanity? I want to preface this by saying I actually only know Roger Waters as the like the crazy anti-Israel guy. I know he's the Pink Floyd. Like I know people probably still go to see his concerts, but I think that at this point there is a generation of people who literally only know him for doing crazy shit. So do you want to tell us who he is? He is the person who uh, who ruined Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd was a very good band. David Gilmore good. Roger well, Waters Sid back. Barrett, amazing. Oh, so let's go back even and earlier. And then Sid Barrett fries all circuits. Shine and then on David crazy Gilmore diamond. tries to do something interesting. But then Roger Waters comes along and produces absolute bloated shit like The Wall, <laughs> uh, which is wow. really one of the... If, if The Who did not record Tommy, I would say this is the most obnoxious, pretentious piece of shit rock opera ever recorded. But now it's a close tie. I don't even care what he says about Jews anymore. And in fact, I never did. His assault on, on you know, <laughs> that is on, a, on humanity that is a great take. via his shitty art, that's <laughs> what I care about. It's like if Billy Joel came out as a Nazi, I'd be like, I, I don't care about that. I care about Piano Man. Well, you know, that was the true crime against humanity. Yes. Well, no, it's, no, it's that's, funny. That would live forever. People would forget that you hate the Jews. They would always remember, you know. Do you want to go to the show? I'd be like, no, 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 never, never. So this latest Roger Waters dust up is that at a concert in Berlin, I will say at Mercedes-Benz Arena <laughs> is the setting for this. He did what he's done at on the tour. At Oprah Stolman Fuhrer Field. <laughs> he's done what he's, he's done, you know, a lot on tour recently, which is where he wore basically like a Nazi armband, Nazi regalia. According to the New York Times, flanked by men dressed in costumes that evoked Nazi stormtroopers, he shot a prop gun into the audience. He does a lot of Nazi inflected things. Typically, as I understand it, a narrative about Israel. There's a lot of Israel in there. There's a lot of references. You know, he projects names onto the screen. So it'll be like Anne Frank and then a bunch of Palestinian kids who are killed in the conflict because those are those are the same. But so here's the funny thing. And then he has also I'm sorry, he has has an, an enormous pig. 
Oh yeah, yeah. Over with the crowd. It, with well, that's like, why I, I think, yeah. you know I don't immediately trash anyone who has criticism of Israel or the Israeli government as an anti-Semite. But I think when you have a giant inflatable pig with a Jewish star, <laughs> like you have to start thinking maybe in addition to his criticism of Israel, he's not too fond of the Jews. To say again, though, in terms of, of things that really bother me. So I, I actually went to see that show when it played Yankee Stadium a few years back. The pig didn't even bother me as much as the fact that he doesn't sing. He hired a bunch of singers <laughs> to sing all of his parts. He just like prances around stage pretending to be like, like a Nazi warlord. Look, I think the thing is he also does a lot of like who controls the, like I think across the screen is rolling like who controls the world, who's at the top, you can't say what you think. The funny thing about this is that doing this in Berlin might get him in trouble because Germany has all these rules against Nazi paraphernalia. He may have actually like backed, I want to say backed himself up against a wall, but... Uh, I think it connects to all the other stories, too. I was joking around about context, but context does matter. You can't, I, I think he's just a anti-Semitic shitster mm-hmm. who then puts out sort of vague messages and projects Anne Frank's name and Shireen Abu Akhled, the Al Jazeera journalist killed by the Israel Defense Force. There are points to be made about all these things, but when you just put up Anne Frank and Shireen Abu Akhled, you're le- leaving people to decide what your message really is. And it's, I think, easy to assume some negative thought behind it and some anti-Semitism. I, I don't know, what, what what is the point of putting those two names? Well, he on? says, when he was, he says in response, they were quite clearly a statement against fascism, injustice, and bigotry. Correct. Attempts to portray these elements as something else are disingenuous and politically motivated, he tweeted. And I think you're right. If you have to explain your subversive political statement, you're not doing it right. Yeah. It would have been perfectly defensible to compensate, look, I am deeply troubled by the state of Israel's policies, and here is a memorial to these people who I believe were brave fighters against this oppressive regime. But then to say, oh, and by the way, they are just like the victims of the Nazis. Like, even as the argument that you are making, it's a kind of morally revolting argument. But this leads me back to Germany because, I don't know, you know, the thing that honestly bothers me the most about this thing is these German censorship laws. I've always found, like, actually deeply... Problematic. Like, I don't want any of that. That to me is how you get more Nazis, not less. Like, have a discussion, have a reality in which you could come on and say whatever the fuck you want. And if people deeply disagree with it, have some kind of debate. I don't know. What is the point of outlawing Holocaust denial? Honestly, is there, is there any good to be had from this? I'm such an absolutist in these things. I, I really don't That's think interesting. so. Well, it just, I guess, drives it underground anyway. It's right. your message is going to get heard somewhere or somehow censoring what's going to be out there in some form in any event maybe isn't an end to be wished. It also plays into this idea that like, what is it? Like, who are the groups you can't talk about? That's what anti-Semites always say. Like, who are the people? Like, you can't right. say bad things about the Jews because then you'll, they'll come for your like recording contract. To me, or your to me America has it just right. Contract. Your punishment for denying the Holocaust should be having to make Lethal Weapon 5. <laughs> and then everyone just sees you right out there in the open, you know, like, hey. So I guess you're w- wishing Roger Waters well in his uh, investigation by Berlin police. <laughs> I Roger Waters to me is really, truly one of the most repulsive humans out there. Well, I, I do just want to I want to end this News of the Jews segment with something that I hope Roger Waters has not found out about, because this this from Roger is, Waters to deep waters. To deep waters. Well um, this is completely unrelated. Roger but that. But here's, <laughs> here's a headline from The Telegraph. Killer whales learn to sink yachts off Gibraltar. Hellbent on revenge after being hit by a boat, an orca named Gladys is now teaching others to attack 
as well. By the way, Gladys, such a Jewish whale. Wow. You thought yeah. we thought AI was going to take us down. An orca named Gladys. No one has yet suggested this was the workings of the Mossad, but this does not give, yet. Not yet, but this does. Let's start a timer. I think we should, and I think we we should say it ourselves because my favorite Wikipedia page of all time, Joshua. It's time for you to be introduced to it. It's called Israel-related animal conspiracy theories. Wow. Um. And, and I'll just start reading it. Conspiracy for, theories. Zoological conspiracy theories involving Israel are occasionally found <laughs> in the media on the Internet. Anyway, this idea is that Israel, specifically the Mossad, are, are training animals to attack civilians or conduct espionage. And there are, I don't know if you see this, there's the birds subheading, mm, there's fish, wow. there's mammals, there's reptiles. Dolphins started the trend. but Yes, the dolphins of- with the thingies. And a lot of this is about tracking devices that are regularly found on animals throughout the world. It is basically the plot of Guardians of the Galaxy 3. Anyway, so no one has yet suggested that this killer whale, Gladys... um, Again, her name is Gladys. Gladys, Yeah, Gladys Goldstein. Um, No one's suggested she's part of the Mossad, but I love this idea. Her real name is Golda Meir. (laughs) Alleged former Russian spy whale spotted off of Sweden's coast. So it's not just the Jews. Oh, maybe, but aren't they all really the Jews? Yeah. It was a Russian spy whale, but then he made Aliyah, and now he lives in Ashdod. (laughs) Now now he's a very Israeli He's at the sea world in Ashdod. We'll be refreshing this Wikipedia page until Gladys gets her rightful place. Righteous among the nations. Yes, yes, exactly. Righteous among the Wikipedia entries. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. 
And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Our Jewish guest this week is my friend David Cowan from my yeshiva days at Westchester Day School. He produced the documentary Afghan Dreamers. It's a wonderful movie which tells the story of an all-girls robotics team from Afghanistan and their struggle to succeed in international competitions while combating their male-dominated culture and the threat of Taliban rule. David Cowan, welcome to Unorthodox. So happy to be here. Tell us about this amazing movie. Afghan Dreamers is a documentary about these very brave young girls who formed a robotics team to compete internationally in the global first robotics competition. What makes them so heroic is that they did this in a place where there's very strong religious disfavor towards educating girls especially in areas like engineering, math, science. It was not only difficult, it was really dangerous for them. And in fact, during this journey, they had to confront violence, and in some cases, fatal violence against them and their families. And yet they were so driven that they just resolved to do it. And in the process, they became very close and they managed to travel the world and compete with success that surprised everyone. But As they did so, the danger only mounted. The more famous they became, the more infamous they became among the elements of Afghanistan that did not want to see girls succeeding doing this. It's an amazing story. How did you hear about this? I have a college friend, Doug Chin, whose wife, she's a leader in the American Women's Medical Association, And she went to a conference supporting girls' education in STEM. She met these girls there on their first trip to the United States, and she and Doug put some of them up in her house. So at some point, I'm hanging out with my college friends, and Doug starts telling us this story about these girls. And I just thought it was such an incredible, inspiring story for girls everywhere to hear about, including my own daughter, that I thought, I got to make a movie about it. How does one make that into reality? So the first step, I have to say this sounds really obnoxious, but it helps if the first step is to make a lot of money doing something else, right? (laughs) I'm I'm still on the first step. (laughs) Step two is to call a director I had funded in another film as an executive producer, a film called The Blech Effect. I called David Greenwald because I thought he made a beautiful movie, and I told him about this story, and he said, yeah, absolutely. For both of us, the story resonated because of our own immigrant experiences in our families, you know, especially for a lot of Jewish immigrants who came from places where it was very difficult for them to pursue the educations and livelihoods that they wanted to pursue. It was a story that resonated both with me and with David, whose whose own parents were survivors of the Holocaust. In addition to being a filmmaker, you're also an entrepreneur and investor. I'm really curious. When you meet these amazing girls, is there a moment in which you say, huh, so all day long, I deal with Stanford grads who come to me with some app to deliver dog food faster. And here are these amazing girls under penalty of death, actually creating amazing robotics things. Like, does it kind of change how you look at your industry? 
it changes how I look at not just my industry, but at life in the United States. I mean, these girls are are so happy to have an opportunity to just have any rights, any kind of freedom at all, freedoms that we all take for granted here. For you know, this 20-year period, Afghanistan had this window of freedom. And to see how the Afghans just seize it, I think is really inspiring for people in the United States, which is part of the, the story of the film. The, the film has been screened now in several different festivals before it was released last week by Paramount+. Plus. And one of those screenings was at the film school at University of Southern California, where my daughter happens to be a student. For that screening, I brought Samaya Faruqi to answer questions. And Samaya is one of the girls in the film, and she's just an incredible advocate for girls' education. Right now, she's studying to be an engineer, pulling straight A's. She's also flying around the world on behalf of the UN to stump for Afghanistan and stump for girls. I brought Samaya to USC. I said to Samaya, would you like to spend an evening with my daughter in her dorm at USC so you could see what life is there like at USC? But the reality is I wanted my daughter to see what life with Samaya Faruqi is like, because when you say, does it change my point of view? Yes, absolutely. I fell in love with these girls. I find them to be heroes. And I didn't want to miss the chance for my daughter to get to know one of these heroes as well. And honestly, I mean, look, the, the movie, I think it really leaves you with a sort of larger point of view on the world, right? Because if you consider our abandonment of Afghanistan, it's very easy to take it as sort of like, well, you know, it was a you know, foreign policy military decision. But when you see these girls, you realize, no, actually, what's at stake is all this immense potential that we mustn't ever neglect and we should do whatever we can to help. Yes, that's exactly right. I think it's so easy for all of us. I mean, I certainly lived my whole life without thinking about what it's like for people living in Afghanistan and lots of other countries. And I've continued to kind of live oblivious to the experience of most people in the world. But at least now I've been exposed to this, this one amazing people. And I think it's just really important for their stories to be heard, to see how eager they are to live freely, not to live under this handmaid's tale reality. That is what they're living through. I mean, it's easy to think, well, these people on the other side of the world, this is how they want to live. No. When the Taliban toppled Afghanistan, it was no different than what we saw in Handmaid's Tale, where suddenly a theocracy takes over, sends the women home, and says, your only job now is to clean and make babies. And that's it. And if you don't, we will hang you in the square. It's important for all of us to, to see it. If I remember from the film... After the Taliban took control again, the girls were being held responsible for not only for having been educated, I guess, past the age of 12, but for having traveled outside the country without a male guardian. Is that correct? Correct. Uh, when the Taliban took over, they circulated the girls' pictures and called for their deaths because they had dared to travel without a male guardian. Yes. Obviously, it wasn't just that one sin, but it was more the what what it is that these girls stood for. Could you tell us about what happens when the film is in post-production and your job suddenly becomes to help these girls flee the Taliban? When we made the film, we thought it was going to be a film about triumph. We thought that this was a film to show what is happening in Afghanistan as opposed to what happened. And then the Taliban surprised everyone by just taking over the country so quickly right when the United States was, was withdrawing. So there were a couple of things that happened. The first one is that we became very concerned about the welfare of these girls. And we knew that just making the film had put them in danger. 
I mean, I just started thinking, what what can I do to try to get these girls out of there? And honestly, a little bit of it was just selfishness. Like, I need to get the girls out of Afghanistan or we can't show our movie to anybody because then they'll really be in trouble. So I started even before the Taliban, when the Taliban took over Herat, I started thinking, okay, we got to get these girls out. When the Taliban toppled the whole government, that's when it changed from how do the girls get to college? Can we show our movie to, oh my God, these girls are going to be hunted. Their families are going to be hunted. What can we do? And the movie became unimportant. It became just secondary. And I reached out to friends that I have in the military, in the State Department, anybody I could think of to try to help get these girls and their families onto the SIV list, the special list that Congress had authorized to allow Afghans to come to the United States and apply for a visa year. I didn't really know what I was doing, but you know, I kind of did, again, kind of resorting to the obnoxious behavior of a rich Silicon Valley guy. I chartered a jet thinking that that was going to help. And it turns out that it certainly wasn't helpful in the first two weeks after the invasion because the problem wasn't getting a plane into and out of Kabul airport. It was getting Afghans into the Kabul airport where the gates were all closed. It was surrounded by Taliban. There were throngs of Afghans trying to get into the airport. And the problem was how to get people into the airport. And I was very fortunately connected through through a friend of mine who today is actually ambassador of cyberspace for the United States, Nate Fick. He's he's a Marine officer. Nate introduced me to commandos, special force commandos who were still trying to operate in Kabul in order to evacuate people who had helped the United States. And so I cooperated with these amazing soldiers and then later with some intelligence officers who were all coordinating activities on the ground using their interpreters and their assets to try to help move people into the airport. Later on in the press, it was referred to as Operation Pineapple. At one point, they brought the families of the girls to the airport. The girls had 54 relatives who needed to be evacuated as well for their safety. They fled Herat to this apartment in Kabul. They were holed up here and it was dangerous for them because the Taliban was paying bounties to neighbors to turn in anyone suspicious. And here were 54 people in this apartment. And they went to the airport with the idea of going there because they were now, I got them on the list. And they were beaten by the Taliban again and again until after four hours they left. And at this point, they were even further endangered because they could have been followed back to the apartment. At some point, an intelligence operative said to me, to get these people to safety, let's try to get them into the Barron compound, which is this campus across the street from the airport that the Taliban were not yet occupying because it was fortified by this wall. They said it's owned by this Pakistani warlord. And if you rent the compound from the warlord, then we can bring your people there and then arrange with the Marines to like send a helicopter over or something. So I said, okay, uh, sure, I'll rent it from the Pakistani warlord. You know, I'll go on Airbnb. Uh, just yeah, just and be like, right. He's a super host. <laughs> how many pictures do they have posted? <laughs> yeah, how many bathrooms uh, does it include? What's the Wi-Fi password? So, so sure, like, how do I do that? And they said, well, this guy won't rent it to us, but he'll but he'll talk to you. It's like, what? He'll talk to me. Why? Well, he fancies himself a tech entrepreneur, uh. and he like <laughs> wants to talk to a Silicon Valley VC. I said, sure, I, I'll like. I'll talk tech with him. And so they tried to arrange this for me to talk to him, but then they found out that he had already rented it to the British. Sublet? Yeah, exactly. 
So the British soldiers were in there at the time. And so I, I started calling friends in the UK saying, can you, can you please put these 54 people onto a list to let them in? And they said, okay. And then we had to arrange this protocol to get these 54 people into this compound because the doors were closed. There were throngs of people around it. And we had to develop this protocol with somebody on the roof of who we were, because when you look down, everybody's wearing white head coverings and you can't tell who's who. And so you, we would move people two or three at a time, make a signal, they'd open up the gate quickly, people would come in, we'd close the gate. And after a few hours, we got these 54 people in. Wow. And they arranged with the Marines to open up their gate facing the airport. The Marines opened up their gate and they ran a quick convoy and closed the gates very quickly. And so these 54 people got to safety in the airport. Once they were in the airport, they didn't need my plane to come in. The Marines were there and the Marines took them took them to safety. It actually gets much more harrowing than this. I'm sorry, but wow. if they made a freaking movie out of how Air Jordans became a thing. Yeah, this is I mean, like yeah, Argo. I was going to say, there's a second yeah. movie in this. I was going to say, Joshua Molina <laughs> is David Cowan in Operation I was going to say it, but that's where I've been, <laughs> I've been thinking all the time. You have more hair than I do, but that's what wigs are for. Let me be clear. I would make a terrible character in the movie because this whole time, I was not in any danger at all. In fact, I was actually in Europe, in Croatia. I was doing all this through texting and WhatsApp. And I was doing it, by the way, with my co-producer, Beth Murphy, who is incredible. Beth is the one who actually had interviewed the girls in Afghanistan. So she knew them and their families. And while I was arranging logistics, she was the one who was actually talking to them, saying, please come here, get on this bus, go over here, get these papers together, send me your documents so we can get the SIV list. Like she, she and I were partnered through all this. What happened next is that once these 54 people were out, there were the people who hold them up in the safe house. Ugh. There were people who also worked for the robotics team. There was another robotics girl who didn't get out yet and her family. And so the circle of people who came to me kept growing. And this was something that happened over the coming weeks and months. In fact, it's still happening today where people keep coming and saying, well, can you help this family? Can you help that family? The circle just kept widening. And at some point it started widening to people that I had no connection to, just people who were imperiled. After that, it became honestly part of my life. And it turns out that the, the plane that I chartered actually turned out to serve its purpose. About two weeks later, it landed in Bazaar and it carried out 399 Afghans. But it's, it, it's getting much, much harder to get Afghans out now because the Taliban knows who everybody is and the borders are closed. But the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan is, is terrible. In addition to the suppression of human rights, there's massive poverty and it's very difficult. And it's, it seems to have lost its appeal to the mainstream media. Yeah, you know, the Ukraine invasion kind of eclipsed Afghanistan in the news, although it's coming back a little bit as news of subjugation of women's rights is becoming ever more blatant. I could tell you, in September, there was a bombing at a school where 20 some odd kids were killed, over 100 kids were injured. And the girls who were injured were not allowed to see doctors because the doctors are men and they won't allow women doctors. So these girls who were, had shrapnel in them can't get healthcare in Afghanistan. It's just terrible. I mean, yeah. So uh, kudos to Jewish Humanitarian Relief Fund. There is an Afghan there named Simona Korishi who has made it her mission to save Afghans. And she and the Jewish Humanitarian Relief Fund have been working tirelessly to get these injured girls out of Afghanistan and into places where they can be treated with their families and live safely. And, you know, for a 
a Jewish show like Unorthodox, we should just take a moment and and be very proud of the Jewish Humanitarian Relief Fund. Yeah, wow. I was going to say that also, you know, knowing the backstory behind this film, Afghan Dreamers, it makes the, sh- the story that's being told just honestly so much more. It's hard to get more moving than the film, but, you know, knowing all of this and and David Cowan, I'm just so, we're, I think, also appreciative of all the work that you've done. Call it a vote. Yeah, seriously. Rock on. Thank you. Yeah, you say that that it gives the story more meaning. I think it has some similarities with Leopoldstadt in that it's a story in a way about a tragedy that befalls a people, but the story doesn't tell the details about the tragedy itself. Instead, it introduces you to the actual real people who lived in the years before the tragedy so that you really come to know them and love them. And we all know what happened with the Holocaust to the characters in Leopoldstadt. And we also all know what happened in Afghanistan. But as you watch the stories, you just come to feel it. You, you, you feel the pain and you feel what happens to them. When I saw Leopoldstadt, I, I, I felt that, I felt that, you know, parallel. I think it's a terrific comparison, but how heartbreaking it is that we still allow such unspeakable evil to unfold and, and still sit by idly as this, you know, horrendous crime against humanity is unfurling right here in front of our eyes. So David Cowan, for everything you do, for the film and for the amazing humanitarian work and for being our guest, most importantly, on Unorthodox. Thank you so much. Thank you, David. And I will say you're welcome, but I'm saying you're welcome on behalf of first, the amazing filmmakers who made Afghan Dreamers, David Greenwald, Beth Murphy, Elizabeth Mizrahi, with Great oversight from our executive producers, Sheila Nevins and Ellen Gusenberg-Kent. You're welcome on their behalf, but for the evacuations, there are so many people who did way more, who risked their lives and continue to do so every day to help the millions of displaced Afghans today. Inshallah. David Cowan, thank you for being on Unorthodox. All our listeners head to Paramount Plus to check out Afghan Dreamers. I want to congratulate Josh on his play winning a Drama League Award. Thank you, David. For me, it was uh, it was particularly delightful to see him play the patriarch role of Herman. It brought full circle for me his very first public performance, which was as Abba in the Model Seder at Westchester <laughs> Day School. <laughs> I, know, I peaked early. Wow, that is amazing. That's a visual. Um, David, it's so nice to talk with you. And thank you for your friendship with Josh, for your work. It's been, it was great to meet you. Thank you so much. This episode's Across the USA segment was produced with support from the Jewish Federations of North America. The Jewish Federations of North America are the backbone of the organized Jewish community in the U.S. and Canada, representing over 350 Jewish communities. They raise and distribute more than $1 billion annually, including through planned giving and endowment programs to build flourishing Jewish communities domestically in Israel and around the world. For more information, visit jewishfederations.org. Mailbox, got a letter in the mailbox, got a letter in the mailbox, mailbox. 
to the mailbox, we have the greatest letters this week. They all share the initials IBD or is it IBS? I will read this because I think I'm the one who made this error. I think I'm responsible for this error, so I want to own it. Okay, here's our first one. I love the show, so I hate to fetch, but I have to call out a misconception in your News of the Jews report about the IBD story. This was, of course, about the report that said Jews were more likely to have gastrointestinal... About uh, the breaking news story. breaking news story. that scientists had zeroed in on the exact reason Jews suffer from gastrointestinal distress at a higher, Ashkenazi Jews, I should say, at a higher rate than the, the broader population. Okay, IBD stands for inflammatory bowel disease, like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, which are serious and even life-threatening and are not a subject for jocularity. You made the common mistake of confusing IBD with IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, which is uncomfortable, but less inappropriate as the butt of your banter. Keep up the great work and eat more fiber. Jerry Titel, MD, but not a gastroenterologist, Toronto. But apparently the arbiter of what can be joked about. You know, this this is not Dr. Titel. Jerry is not the only person writing in. Joshua, you want to take this? Yes, yes, I do. Also, <laughs> IMDB stands for the Internet Movie Database. I just want to make that clear. As a devoted listener and longtime gastroenterologist, 40 years of digestive kvetching, I would like to clarify the difference between IBS and IBD. The former irritable bowel syndrome is more common than the more serious inflammatory bowel disease, which includes Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. The inflammatory diseases, which often require very intensive treatments and can lead to serious consequences, are truly more common in the Ashkenazic population. These can be considered to be in some measure genetically transmitted and found more commonly in members of our tribe than in other populations. In contrast, it had been my impression that IBS transcends religious barriers. How beautiful. That's my commentary. And affects the general population diffusely. Many individuals actually mislabel IBS as colitis, but they label it incorrectly since IBS is not associated with an inflammatory process. Abdominal pain gas, and bloating can be seen in both IBS and IBD patients, and therein lies the public confusion. They are very distinct entities and as such should not be conflated. I hope this helps you and your devoted listeners, me being among them, truly yours, Harvey Gutman. Now that's got to be a made-up name, MD, <laughs> Chief Emeritus of Gastroenterology, Abington Jefferson Hospital, Gastrointestinal Associates. So, First of I, all, Harvey Gutman, MD, <laughs> is my new Marvel superhero. Like he's, oh he's the hero America's Wait, been waiting but for. This feels great because, Joshua, this is your first unorthodox skirmish. Yes. That you have been I'm part in of. It. I'm right is, in the thick of it. It is because we confused IBS and IBD. Or we maybe in our joking about the story about IBD, we minimized it. I'm just right. a little bit disappointed that we didn't read the letters like those, you know, very fast-talking script in medical commercials. <laughs> Abdominal pain, gas, and bloating can be seen in both IBS and IBD patients. There lies a public confusion. There are very distinct entities and should not be conflated. Like, that's this, how we should have read this those letters. this is amazing. And this is like, this is when you know you truly stepped in it on a Jewish podcast. Stepped in. That I have. Good, very nice. <laughs> I, you I should think, take responsibility because um, I'm, I'm very this. ignorant about all things medical. So I would have made all these mistakes. But I'm glad to be educated. And I'm glad that we share IBS with our gentilic brothers and sisters. I know, I love sisters. that, that that is, it is diffuse, diffuse across the feel, population. Feel our pain. Maybe that's like, instead of interfaith, share it's like gastro-interfaith work that we do. So episode two, and I have to issue my first apology. I'm sorry for <laughs> anyone I offended <laughs> with any jokes. To the Jews. Harvey Gutman. I really want to make an IBDS joke, but I don't think that 
<laughs> As always, we welcome letters, uh, especially when they yell at us, especially when they correct us. If there are any other acronyms that we have gotten wrong, UJA, JTA, JBC, I don't know. Just let us know. Keep our alphabet straight. Send us emails and voice memos at unorthodox.tabletmag.com. Leave us a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. That's a 914 number for you, Joshua, in honor of your Westchester roots. Of your Your roots. J.Crew, this week we are bringing you another installment of our series Across the Jew-S-A. Created, of course, with the support of the Jewish Federations of North America. Every month we travel to a different Jewish community in America. And this month, boy, oh boy, what a treat we have for you. Because showrunner Courtney Hazlett traveled to, am I pronouncing this right, New Orleans to experience Jazz Fest in a surprisingly Jewish way. So get ready for some incredible interviews and even more incredible music, y'all. This is a bucket list concert for me. You know, I've always wanted to do this. It's a big deal to be invited and asked to do this. So I'm just really uh, humbled by it. That is Joe Gelini, the drummer and band leader for Chawa, the two-time Grammy-nominated Mardi Gras Indian funk band. We're in New Orleans during Jazz Fest, one of the greatest music festivals in existence, and one of the city's great traditions right up there with po'boys and beignets. However, we are not at the Jazz Fest fairgrounds, which draws hundreds of thousands of people from across the world. Nope, that bucket list concert Joe is talking about is Jazz Fest Shabbat, where he'll be performing on the Bema at Turo Synagogue. I'm Courtney Hazlett, and on this episode of Across the USA, we're headed to the Big Easy to hear what it sounds like when music, tradition, and community come together. Wilmington, Delaware, gonna find a jelly there Looking for a dreidel in the cradle of the heartland Lots to see in Lakewood, Jersey But there's a man of Shepherds down in Louisville, Kentucky North, South Carolina Looking for lots in a country diner I can say we're on our way All across the USA If you've never made it to New Orleans or Jazz Fest and are wondering what it could possibly have to do with Shabbat, here's what you need to know. The fest is held at the New Orleans Fairgrounds and runs every year over the course of two weekends. It's always the last Friday through Sunday in April and the first Thursday through Sunday in May. I have to be honest, I've been to Jazz Fest plenty of times, but until recently, I had never considered there might be a choice to be made. Stay for the headlining acts on Friday night, which in this case are Lizzo, Wu-Tang Clan, and Robert Plant and Alison Krauss, or book it to synagogue in time for Shabbat prayers. That's stiff competition, and luckily, some smart folks figured out a best-of-both-worlds scenario. A night that might even transcend the Jazz Fest main stage itself. But how did we even get here? One of the famous stories that we love to tell is about Louis Armstrong, the great jazz trumpeter. 
That's Kenneth Hoffman, the director of the Museum of the Southern Jewish Experience, which opened in the warehouse district here just a few years ago. Come for the Shalom Yal merch, but stay for stories of the Jewish South. We're at the museum with him on the eve of Jazz Fest. And before we can tell a story of Jazz Fest Shabbat, we need to tell the story of New Orleans Jews in the city's music scene. And Louis Armstrong, when he was a, a, a young boy, was sort of taken in by a family of Lithuanian immigrants named the Karnofskis. They were rag peddlers. They would go through the street with their cart and they would pick up junk and sheet metal and things like that. And they employed a young Louis Armstrong. He would sit on the back of their cart and he would toot on a little tin horn to get people's attention. He would have meals with them. And they actually gave him $5 to buy his first cornet. And for the rest of Louis Armstrong's life, he wore a Jewish star necklace. He loved to keep a box of matzahs backstage. He said he liked to nibble on it. No, account, no, one likes no, accounting, for, no <laughs> accounting for taste. What can I tell you? Everyone's different. A Jewish family helped one of the greatest jazz musicians of all time get his start, Dayenu. They're not alone though. There's at least one more Jewish family who played a big role here. Preservation Hall in the French Quarter was really started by the Jaffe family and still today is, is maintained by the Jaffe family. And that's all the, you know, the great original jazz artists. Now there's few, if any, left, but folks who, you know, who want to preserve that Dixieland jazz and that early jazz style play at Preservation Hall. So we're very proud of our participation in the music scene here in New Orleans. It just so happens we caught up with the Jaffe family, specifically Ben Jaffe. We'll let him tell you a little more about Preservation Hall. It's essentially the size of a living room. It looks like a little Quaker chapel. There's some wooden benches and it fits about 50 to 60 people. There's enough room for about seven musicians. You squeeze into this little tiny space and the band performs and has been performing New Orleans music, the music that, that, that we were all sort of raised with. I said, when I say we, I, I'm very fortunate because of who my dad was. Ben is talking about his dad, Alan Jaffe. Alan and his wife, Ben's mom, Sandra, started Preservation Hall in 1961 as a place to, well, preserve the African-American and Creole jazz music traditions. Segregation and Jim Crow laws of the time were making it increasingly difficult for this type of music to find a home. Preservation Hall was one of the only places where everyone was welcome to play music or listen, regardless of race or religion. You can draw a straight line from the spirit of this venue to Jazz Fest Shabbat today. When I was growing up and I was bar mitzvahed, half the people in the audience that day were African-American or Creole, like members of the community that had a relationship to my parents. They were there the same way that I attend, you know, a baptism or any kind of ceremony to sell, you know, it's like a, a just a, a show of like communal support. They weren't there to show their devotion to Judaism or, you know, or like, Shema, right? But yeah, but I mean, they were, but I mean, they understand that you know that, that there is, I think, also like a respect for the the Old Testament, you know, and the ritual of like Judaism that and, and families that have been in New Orleans. 
but I know it when we did Shabbat, when Preservation Hall Jazz Band did Shabbat at Toro Synagogue, for all of the members of the band, it was their first time going into Toro. In New Orleans, where Jewish life predates the Louisiana Purchase and continues to thrive today, preserving Jewish tradition means preserving the traditions of the city itself. Toro's cantor, Kevin Margolius, tells us more. Jazz Fest Shabbat started in 1992 with cantor Stephen Dubov, who noticed that we have one of the biggest music festivals in the country right here in New Orleans. And it happens over Shabbat. Why don't we do something to celebrate our heritage? This is the oldest synagogue outside of the 13 colonies in this country. We're 195 years old now. And we are so deeply integrated with the rhythms of this city. Dozens of parades for Mardi Gras roll right in front of our building. And we're out there catching beads with everybody else. The New Orleanian heritage at Toro Synagogue runs so, so deep and so in 1992, Cantor Stephen Dubov, of blessed memory, decided to bring that into our Shabbat service and created the very first Jazz Fest Shabbat. At the fairgrounds where Jazz Fest is held, there are 14 stages with blues, funk, jazz, gospel, Cajun, Zydeco music. There's rap, pop, rock, all sorts of genres. But can you capture that type of diversity in a synagogue? The Friday Night Liturgy is set to music across different musical styles. And we have over 60 musicians coming together each year to make this happen. Our volunteer choir, our house band, Panorama Jazz Band, and a special guest star each year. This is what it's like to live in New Orleans. You don't have to walk very far to hear a different band on a Wednesday night at a different venue here. People breathe music. And so we're very much trying to bring people in on Friday night, just as they were earlier in the day at the fairgrounds. People come in shorts and t-shirts for the Shabbat service, and we're so happy to have them. This is all sounding fun, and like the cantor says, this is a way of life here in New Orleans. But it isn't sounding much like the start of Shabbos, depending on your level of observance. It's all about that. I asked Katie Bowman, Turo's senior rabbi, about this. That blurring of boundaries where we use non-Jewish modes of music and even some non-Jewish modes of prayer, depending on who the artist is, to lift up our Jewish prayers, that's not comfortable for everyone. And certainly what happens here is full of technology. There are lights, there's amplification. So I can understand that there are, there are some Jews who will say, this is not for me, either because of how I like to pray Jewishly or because of the emotional place that I'm at. I think that most people who, are, who live here and who encounter what is happening understand that music is a universal language and, the, and especially the music of New Orleans that comes at its heart from enslaved people who had this one way to lift their voices and, um, and express themselves together in Congo Square uh, they're on their one day off. People feel the spirit in that, they're moved by that, and they can use it as a conduit for their own Jewish prayers. Congo Square is an open space located in what is now Louis Armstrong Park in New Orleans' Treme neighborhood. In 1817, it was designated as the sole place enslaved people could gather on their day off. They used the space to sell goods, worship, and importantly, dance and make music. 
And that's one of the reasons that the music of New Orleans is as vibrant as it is, because that culture had space to breathe here, and it didn't in other places. And so I think that story is part of what you hear when you hear the music of New Orleans, and you can feel it, which is why I think most people appreciate the gift of that, even in a Jewish religious space. Speaking of Jewish religious spaces, Joe Gelini and Shawa are getting ready to perform on the Bima at Turo Synagogue, a Jewish religious space if there ever was one. Which seems like a good time to point out, neither Joe nor any member of his band is Jewish. Yet, he's been to Jazz Fest Shabbat before. I remember the first time I came and saw Jazz Fest Shabbat I sort of had a spiritual experience. I saw the cantor sing and perform, and I was just blown away at how virtuosic he was. I mean, his just voice was incredible. Was like, the things that they were doing were so rhythmic and melodic, and I just fe felt like so many crossovers. And I was like, wow, I would love to play with him someday. And that was like 13 years ago, and today I get to. What's important about it is I think that it allows a really cool bridge for people to come and be a part of this Jewish cultural celebration and see that it probably has a lot of parallels to what they do in their life in New Orleans. Music in New Orleans uh, allows us to cross a lot of borders. But why here? Why not at the fairgrounds? One of the most popular stages at the fest is the gospel tent. Why not a Shabbat stage? I think that having this celebration in the sanctuary is, you know, we go to Jazz Fest, it's hot, sweaty, and you can crowds, and it's kind of like, it can be a lot, you know, it's extra. I feel like in here, we get this, like, beautiful space, the acoustics are perfect, and we get to have this, like, celebration that combines... Like we're doing a we're doing a uh, version of Iko Iko with Hebrew lyrics. It's been so collaborative and fun, and I'm just I'm just so excited to be here. It's I, I can't even really put it into words. It's just going to be magical. It's just going to be awesome. Something this magical, this awesome, almost has to be experienced in person. So we're going to do our best right now to take you there inside this storied synagogue on St. Charles Avenue. Have a seat or get up on your feet if you feel like it and enjoy this blend, this gumbo, if you will, of tradition and music, Hebrew liturgy and jazz and funk. This is New Orleans. Shalom, y'all. Jazz Fest Shabbat. 
everybody to join in together and we'll invite we're gonna need a bigger bima but we're gonna invite Chawa back up onto back up onto the stage we're gonna squeeze in and rise for our closing song page 20 I don't know
All right, it's time for Mazel Tov. Leal, you want to want to kick us off? I do, because this week it's a circle of life type thing. So first of all, remembering the late, great Gaon, the genius of this generation, Rabbi Gershon Adelstein, who passed away in Yerushalayim at the age of 100. He was the spiritual leader of religious Ashkenazi Jews and an erudite and capable leader who will be sorely missed. And because life ends and new life begins, I want to wish a hearty Mazel Tov to a baby boy who had his bris just this weekend. So welcome to the covenant of the Jewish people. Lev Tzion Asher. May you be a joy to your parents. Amen. I'll go next. I, I watched the new Sarah Silverman special. It is so funny. And the best part about it is that she revives that tweet, that bit about people not being able to go in the swimming pool if you've had diarrhea in the past 14 days. She does the whole thing. And I was like, oh, my God, we just talked about that. Mazel tov to Sarah Silverman. Also, mazel tov to our former Gentile of the Week, another comedian, Zarna Garg. Her special One in a Billion is on Prime Video now. And as funny as she was in our interview with her, she is so hilarious in this special. She does. It's just amazing. And I like to think that she's doing for the Indian community, what so many Jewish comics did for the Jewish community. And I love, I love her. And she is just amazing. So everyone should watch that. Right on. I'm going to keep it close to home and just throw out a mazel tov to my children and to all people of that age for finishing another school year. Yes. School's hard. Amen. School is very hard. is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Liel Leibovitz and Joshua Molina. Show your unorthodox pride by getting some merch at tabletstudios.com. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And our team includes Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Jerome Rusquet, with help from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our logo and merch is designed by Jenny Rosbrook. Our theme music is by Golem, and our news and mailbox themes are by Steve Barton. 
Our USA theme song is by Noam Osband. Send us emails at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. Until next week, shalom, friends. We made it through another episode. Um, who knows what we've said this week to, to make people mad? Who knows? Oh, I know. What will we apologize for next week? You know what? It's 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 a, the big lead up to. Young I want to apologize it forward and just say I am sorry for everything for, I said. Everything a blanket apology, except for what I said about Belgium. You guys do not ever get an apology. You just suck. Um. All right. <laughs>